Hello, Discerner Billions. Welcome to another fun episode. I'm having a great day. This is the third conversation I've recorded today. I love what I do. If you love what we do, you can support us at discernible.locals.com. Now that's out of the way. Let's welcome today's guest. Uh, today's guest is Paul. I have gotten to ask how to pronounce your last name, Paul. Fritters? Fritters. Freiters. Oh, Paul Freiters is the co-author of The Great COVID Panic. And we've interviewed Gigi Foster at length about that amazing book. And this is one of the co-authors. So today we'll be talking about what he writes about in that book, what's going on, this madness of the world. Uh, we've just interviewed Professor Thomas Harrington about we're in the middle of a giant Milgram experiment around the world. And in a couple of weeks, we have Matthias Desmet on to talk about mass formation psychosis. So let's let's try and get a handle today with Paul on exactly what is happening in the world and especially with what is happening in England, the, the, the seat of from which we all came, Commonwealth countries. We're supposed to be the more rational ones, Paul, but it seems mm-hmm. to me right now I want to flee to the US with their lovely Second Amendment. <laughs> yes, I agree. The US really is looking like the last hope for sort of freedom in the Western world, isn't it? Let's hope they pull it off for us because I do think we'll follow them. So it's a very important struggle that's happening there what do you think which part will we follow them into do you mean um i think that they're you know the republicans will win in november Uh, Mm. i think that's quite reasonable uh, but to think but i think also that the republicans will sort of push this this freedom anti-lockdown uh own choice over vaccines line hard because i think they will discover that there's actually votes in that in america there didn't used to be votes in that two years ago uh, when, you know, also the American conservatives were all in favor of the lockdowns. They were part of the madness. But I think they've escaped uh, and that they've discovered they can get real votes by going in the opposite direction. So that's my big hope, that the, the Republicans will really own that agenda and effectively force the Democrats to make a U-turn on this. And I think once the Americans uh, have turned on this, then within most European countries, the madness will will quickly subside as well. And we might go on to another madness, uh, but hopefully a less destructive one. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. Do you include Commonwealth brothers and sisters in Canada, Australia, New Zealand with that promise? Is that madness? Oh, yes. They've been more mad than the mother country. Definitely. Yes. No, No, the recovery, uh, the the turning away from the madness. Yes. Yes, they, they coordinate with different groups. It's clear that the Canadians are coordinating with the European Union leaders, particularly France, of course, right. um, because, you know, they, they, they sort of know each other quite well. And Australia and New Zealand coordinate with the UK and the US in a different way, more via the security establishment, if you like, particularly Australia. Um, but no, they, they've all been locked down mad. So, yeah, but I, yeah, I think I'm, they will all follow the US. Great. I, it's on record, everyone. Paul promises that we, the most lockdown city Thomas, in the world, Melbourne. No, no, hope, hope. I, I, I likely. <laughs> Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> I have no, no power. Not... <laughs> I'm just doing my best to predict. <laughs> yes, no, we, that's not what we do here on this channel. Okay, look, let's ask just before we get into the psychology and, and your writing, um, what's going on in Britain? So we know uh, over here, we know that Bojo has, uh, Boris has um, resigned, forced to resign because he had 50 or 60 cabinet members resign and so on. But what we are not familiar with is is why, because you've got a conservative prime minister who pushed the lockdown stuff hard. Can you give us mm-hmm. a, an understanding of why people are turning on him now? Um I think it's been a long time coming. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson, by all reports, has always been extremely unpopular with his colleagues, uh, but he was electoral goldmine. So they, they sort of, you know, suffered him because he could win the general election. And he did win the general election for them. Um, but it's been impossible ever since. You know, he, he basically doesn't stick to any rules that he wants others to stick to. Uh, but he's also, by all accounts, uh, a totally fickle and irresponsible boss to all these ministers. So people kept, as it were, walking away from him. Um, And of course, you know, his his electoral appeal is going down greatly because the huge recession that these lockdown policies have caused, uh, it's caused inflation, uh, large increasing poverty in Britain, um, uh, the the situation in both the healthcare system and the educational system is really dire. A whole generation of Brits has effectively been heavily negatively affected and they won't uh, recover to the same degree as the previous generations. Um, the NHS waiting list is sort of longer than ever and, and disruption keeps being in there. So the country is in dire straits. 
And so the, the, as it were, the electoral appeal of Boris Johnson has gone down a lot. And then they just find an excuse to get rid of him, right? But it's, it's basically the only reason that they suffered him uh, was because he could get people to vote for him. And once that magic is gone, the knives are out. Are you going to replace him with a lefty Labour, Jeremy Corbyn type person? Um, I doubt it, to be honest. Uh, I think, first of all, he'll be replaced by another Conservative. So my, my, the smart money is at the moment on Sunak, who seems to be quite reasonable, so the former treasurer. Um, he is, I understand, a bit of a lockdown sceptic, uh, but also the only one who doesn't promise the impossible, uh, namely, you know, uh, tax decreases in a time whereby they're spending vastly outweighs their taxes. So he's the only one who doesn't promise even more uh, inflation in the future by promising tax decreases. Um, so he, he seems to be the more reasonable one. Now, what will happen in the general election? I don't know, but I've, I've always fought Keith Steimer to be almost unelectable. So I've always found it amazing that the Labour Party would push him forward. He, he lacks a lot of charisma. And of course, his only reaction to the draconian lockdowns, which has plunged Britain into you know, a, a horrible crisis, has been that he would, want, he would want to lock down harder and more often. And so I find that totally irresponsible. But you know, that, that part of the party just loves the authoritarianism that comes with these lockdowns. Uh, and they think that that's the way the world can be driven. Uh, but, you know, as we've, as history has shown time and time again, that type of authoritarianism is just impoverishing. It's basically not the way to run a country. You're, you just weaken yourself in the longer run. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see. Okay. Well, we, we've been very disappointed with our, uh, some of us have been disappointed with our result in our last federal election here in Australia. It was only a few months ago. Uh, we did not give a strong showing to the freedom kind of focused parties uh, as a kind of a reaction to the lockdowns. We did not give them the result that we thought we'd give them. We gave more power to our Greens party. So all of that to say, I'm sceptical, but I, I would really like to hear from you about this psychology piece, where the mainstream sit. And I'd love, if you have any knowledge on Australia, I'd love to know what you think about us and why we've chosen to not at all sort of stand up for ourselves throughout this season. So how about we start yes, with I, what's, yes. Uh, I've lived for 15 years in Australia. So that's also where I, I met Gigi and Michael Baker, uh, the co-authors on this great COVID panic book that we wrote. So, yeah, I mean, it's, my, my heart has been bleeding the last couple of uh, years over the sort of, you know, uh, tremendous damage that Australia has done to itself. And most Australians I know don't want to see this damage, but it's still there. You know, the, uh, the, the reduction in the education of kids and particularly uh, of the sort of poorer groups has been horrendous. Right? There's now uh, increases in excess death such that Australia is basically less healthy than it was before and less healthy than countries which basically did much less to, as it were, try and stop the pandemic, uh, like, of course, the whole of Scandinavia, not just Sweden, um, who have far better health outcomes. And then, of course, Australia also had this huge increase in government debt. Uh, the inflation has spiraled out of control. Um, it's just, you know, it's basically awful what's happened to Australia itself. But people seem determined to put their heads in the sand and pretend it's not happening. But it is happening. So I didn't realise you spent time in Australia. Uh, Brisbane or what city? Um, I spent one year in Victoria, uh, three to four years in Canberra, um, another 10 to 11 in Brisbane. Okay. So what is your take on, uh, you would know us quite well then, uh, are we similar to the UK, our citizenry, in our response to authoritarianism or not? Um, no, I, I, I think Australians are, are quite different. I, I think that underlying they're much more egalitarian than the Brits. You know, the Brits really are a class society uh, and very strongly so. I think in Australia that is developing. It is becoming a class-based society, right. um, but it's not yet there. and It doesn't yet have that cultural feel about it. So Australians, I find, are, are much more warm, much more sociable, um, individually much more pleasant, I would say, than the Brits are. Um, and I say this whilst my mother is English, so, you know, I, yes. I, I, I think I have the right to say that. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that the Australians as it were, have this habit of, of really looking to authority to solve stuff. Yes. And they often think that if there is a problem with authority, the solution is to have more authority, right? And so this is the idea of the federal ICAC, uh, which, of course, is not going to do diddly squat. 
Um, but I think that that kind of habit comes from, as it were, long periods of good times, if you like, where the population is lulled to sleep uh, and is sort of easily put into a, a semi-slavery, if you like. So, uh, you know, being very sheepish and following. But that then, of course, leads to such problems at some moments that you get, as it were, a near revolution and you get, you know, huge changes. Uh, and that's a long cycle. And the question is where Australia is on that cycle. And I think it's still a few years off from the renewal cycle, but I do think you will get a renewal cycle. Uh, okay. Australia has had that in the past, you know, uh, around federation time, of course. Uh, after the Second World War, there are a lot of reforms. And I think you will get a reform cycle as well. But first, the Australians have to wake up. And at the moment, they're still fast asleep, I would say, when it comes to the, the real political situation in their country. Okay, so the the weak protest vote I mentioned in our federal election would indicate that they're still quite sleepy on that front. Yep, definitely, okay. definitely, yep. I've done my best on that, by the way. So I've also written another book called Game of Mates, of which there is a second edition coming out with, called With Reed, Cameron Murray? Uh, which is, yes, exactly. Oh, wow. So I'm his PhD supervisor. So it's a small world, uh, Matt. Oh. <laughs> Yes, Cameron Murray's been on the show a number of times. I encourage everyone to check out Game of Mates. Very good book. Um, all right, Paul, can we give, can you give us an education? Because uh, you're a, I don't know if I said in the introduction that um, you're a professor of wellbeing economics at the London School of Economics. Uh, can you give us an education on this psychological background? I'm thinking of this, this article you wrote that we can all be evil and Germans mm -hmm. were nothing special. And of course, this harks back to the Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote that the, the dividing line between good, even, good and evil does not run between classes or states or governments or politics, but through the heart of every man and woman. Can you uh, give us some background into how Australians uh, and uh, perhaps sleepy um, Brits should understand uh, our every everyday acquaintances, uh, you know, their propensity to go all Milgram? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a fascinating thing that I didn't see coming at the start of the pandemic, Matt. So, um, you know how we often think of people as being moral and responsible for their choices, and they sort of mm -hmm. sit back and they wonder about major choices in politics and in their own lives, and are sort of thinking, okay, how is this going to work out? Or what are the benefits? What are the costs? Should I do this or not? And they may get a few calculations wrong, and they may now do an overt calculation, but have some sort of sense of, okay, I think that'll be the result of things. And that's how we've organized our legal system, our political system, and our moral system, to treat people as if they are responsible, as if they sort of step back and sort of uh, put, as it were, a moral loading on various outcomes, uh, and then anticipate those outcomes. Uh, and then make a judgment that it's okay, no, we don't want those outcomes because, you know, lots of people will get hurt uh, and we do want other outcomes. People will be happy and fine. Um, and that kind of depiction is, is one that we teach to our kids very early on. It is baked into our, our institutions. Um, but it's not the whole story as to what we humans are. Right? We, we, we have an ability to become, as it were, totally... Um, following a whole group, if you like. We, we, we have a kind of a dog mode, you can think of it, or a crowd mode, uh, as I think of it. And Desmet talks about that in terms of psychosis, but I, I think psychosis is not the right word because that presumes that, you know, it's sort of uh, some kind of mental illness, whereas mm. this is just part of whom we can be. We are extremely social animals, and it is possible that when a whole group starts to, as it were, become aroused by something, in case of the pandemic, it was a fear that it, it starts to behave like a, a crowd of dogs, just, you know, all yapping at the same time. And within those crowds, people lose that individuality. They lose that sense of responsibility. Uh, life starts to focus on an extremely small thing that they then pretend is extremely big. And, so, you know, is, is the be all and end all of their collective lives, namely, you know, the number of cases uh, of some sort of mild disease starts to be the thing that matters in life. Uh, and all the things that used to matter, like their own children, their own health, um, their futures, their jobs, that all starts to sound very secondary to, to the crowd. Uh, and it starts to be completely focused, completely myopic on very small things. And that, in essence, has been what has happened to us. We we, and, and I say, you know, this is the majority of Western countries and Western populations, and certainly Australia, for a while, became totally obsessed about something that was very small, 
uh, and that allowed us to be robbed. And it basically also cost us a huge amount because we did as populations enormous damage to our own health, to our children, to our own futures, to the standing of our country. It's, it's just been, as it were, a, a, an old goal of spectacular proportions. Um, and it's very hard to truly blame someone for that. You know, the, the, there is a human nature aspect to this ability of us to, to become, as it were, mad crowd members. Um, and once it became clear to me that this was what was going on, and that only became clear to me in sort of the mid-2020, I, I didn't see this coming in March or April. I thought we'd sort of snap out of it within weeks. But when it kept on going, I sort of thought, okay, there's something weird going on. From history, we know that this kind of crowd madness lasts years. It's not something that people snap out of within months. It, it sort of is a, is a new reality that only very slowly people wake up from after they start to discover the huge costs. And then they sort of slowly move away from that kind of crowd madness. But it really takes years before we snap out of this as a, as a large group. And I think Australia, in that sense, is, is really lagging behind the US and the UK in terms of snapping out of it. I think they're still firmly wedded to this kind of, you know, madness of the COVID and, and in love with authoritarianism that's come with it, and really not prepared at all yet to look at the tremendous damage that's been done to Australians themselves. And the Brits and the Americans are further than that, right? America's been lucky because of its, the nature of its politics has meant that yes. some states went the other way, and they've done spectacularly better than those who, went, who sort of remained mad. Uh, and Britain... Uh, has partly because it's outside of the European Union really borne the brunt of its own stupidity. There's been no way to sort of mitigate the uh, effects of its own policies. And so also has been forced to wake up earlier than other countries. So when you say uh, this kind of a madness uh, dissipates slowly, does that mean mm -hmm. it's a mistake to be waiting for a big explosive event, a victory moment, a big mea culpa? It's all going to happen very gradually. That's not what history suggests. Right? Uh, it, so... A nice example, which we talk about in our book, is the, um, the prohibition in the US, which lasts from 1919 to 1932, 1933, so 13 to 14 years, basically. Uh, and that was a kind of a madness, you know, uh, uh, outlaw all drinks in a whole society, which has lots of pressures, and drink was the way that people let off steam. Uh, and so we all know the stories about how that just meant that drink went underground and, and fueled a lot of mafiosi. Uh, and it was really devastating for social society. But even eight years in, lots of people were still enthusiastic for it. And there was never a mea culpa. It just, you know, quietly went off the table and quietly the constitution got changed so that drinks were allowed again. And uh, basically, people then gradually went on with another problem. So it was more that some other problem came uh, came. Uh, came by to dominate the national story. And in that case, it was the, the major recession of the mid-1930s. Uh, the New Deal uh, and sort of, you know, the, the coming new war, that sort of occupied people's minds then. But the instigators of that madness, no, they just, you know, slightly um, were taken less seriously, but they just went on to other topics. And we've seen this before. And unless somebody invades you and sort of, you know, really shakes you up uh, and starts to put people on trial, Populations just gradually lose that madness or get another focus. And that is the way that this can go, right? That, that kind of crowd behavior can latch on to other stuff. So it sort of goes from one madness to another. And of course, one can think of even more um, greater madnesses than this, right? I mean, going to war with China would be a greater madness. Um, and there are other, as it were, even more stupid things that we as, as humans are capable of doing. But Let's hope it won't come to that, and indeed we'll sort of get this, at least this gradual waking up. But don't expect that to lead to some sort of, you know, giant moment of, okay, and, and now we're going to hold people responsible. It takes a lot to do that, because populations then also have to wake up to what they have done to their own children, what they have done to their own health, and to that of their neighbors, and that all their moral grandstanding was, was effectively a form of harm. That's a horrible thing for people. They really don't want to hear that. So they, they preferred to just pretend it didn't happen. They weren't involved. They didn't do anything. They basically want to falsify their own history. And they, they don't want to hear in, in their political stories that the politicians have sort of um, woken up and now see things uh, diametrically opposed to how they used to see it. That, that is painful for them. They don't want that. So politicians are not going to say that. 
Okay, I'd like to explore more about the general population and you know the Nazi phenomenon. I, I would have hit an Anne Frank and all this kind of thing. But before we do that, that just there's two voices you mentioned. So, for example, in the prohibition area, even eight years in, there were still people pushing for it. And right now in Melbourne, we have people calling for lockdowns. Certainly a lot of people calling for mandates of masks to return and working from home to which will devastate our city again, uh, hospitality and so on. But what happens to those two voices, those who, like us and yourself and, and channels like this mm-hmm. and, and Cameron Murray and Gigi Foster, those voices that have been speaking out consistently from the beginning say, hey, this is madness. And there are those other voices who push the madness along. After events finish, historically speaking, what happens to those two voices? Um, both get on with other stuff, effectively. Right? So the... The prohibition era is a nice example because the nature of the voices which which kept on supporting it uh, had private interests at a certain moment of doing that, right? They were either running illegal alcohol themselves or they were part of the the police forces that were trying desperately to enforce these things. And so their livelihood is dependent on this. Um, Or they had, you know, got great political power over this uh, and they wanted to keep that gig going. And similarly now, with masks, vaccinations, lockdowns, they're just particular companies making money out of this, which are pushing that, right? The internet companies like the idea of working at home. Um, the, the, the vaccine developers and disseminators like the idea that people have a kind of a Pfizer loyalty card for their boosters. Uh, and same with masks. You know, there's just, just actual commercial interest driving a lot of this now. Uh, and that, that's been exactly how it went in sort of previous moments of crowd madness in human history. You know, um, groups figure out how to make money out of it and then they keep supporting it. Uh, and only gradually does a population, as it were, do away with that. And after that, people, as it were, get reabsorbed I- into a, a single, um, more diffuse group, if you like, and life just continues. Right? So it's not true that those who spoke out against the prohibition in America became great heroes. Uh, that were then revered ever more. It was more than, yeah, well, they, were, they were probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't really want to know. Shut up. Go, go sit over there. Yeah, yeah you're right. Don't rub it in. Uh, that's more how that goes, right? So don't expect a national victory parade for having been right all along. So, so what is the best way to get through a madness? I mean, you've spoken out through the madness. Do you regret that mm-hmm. and the heat you've received for that? Um, I've received much less heat than Gigi Foster. I've, in that sense, been a, a little bit more the academic of the background, you know, writing stuff, whereas other people have taken more the front uh, uh, and the brunt of this. Uh, Cameron and Gigi in Australia are great examples of that. Mm. Um, but I, I, I worked out at the end of March 2020, early April, that it made no sense talking to the crowd, right? I mean, there's, there, it was very quickly obvious to me that there was there was sort of a blindness and a madness to them that, that there was just no talking to them. It, it was like talking to people who insisted that two plus two was 356. And you could sort of say, no, 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 two plus two has always been four. And they would look at you glazily and, and really say, but what about this? But what about that? You know, two is not really two. Uh, and so it was kind of obvious to me that no, there was no talking to that. So I have spent all my efforts at this time talking to people who themselves were doubting, who themselves were thinking, no, this is not right. And, and so trying to discuss with them, uh, um, A, sort of a search for truth, what has gone on, how should we see this, but also a search for future hope, which is, well, what should we now do? What are our options? How can society be changed in the future so that we don't do this stupidity again? And of course, you know, lots of problems have become visible, like the corruption. Uh, what should we do about that? Mm. Um, and that is, as it were, have a, a ledger of reforms. And what does tend to happen in human society is that the ledger of reforms is sort of grudgingly acknowledged by everyone as being there, uh, and first it's laughed at. But at certain moments in history, that ledger of reform very quickly can get implemented, and usually by other people. Right? Um, and so that's how I see my role. Uh, a, searching with people like yourselves for stories as to what's happened and sort of, you know, um, give ourselves a bit of moral a morale boost, but also to, to come up with a whole series of ideas and reforms. And I would like thousands of people to come up with ideas. I said, okay, what should we do in the future to improve our societies on a whole set of things that, that have been shown to be defunct or, or not functioning very well in the last couple of years? 
sometimes I wonder if it would have been wiser for us to adopt Peter Hitchens' defeatist attitude and just retreat to a monastery at the top of the mountain and wait for the madness to pass. Well, you can do that, but that's like not engaging with humanity. That's, mm. that's in a way, it's also boring to do that. Mm. So uh, I, 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 like yourselves, like Gigi, like uh, Cameron, and like several others, you know, you, you sort of also see it as a historical duty, but it's also, as it were, a part of life that you engage with the, the major political events of your time. And you take a position and you, you push that, right? Uh, and in your own mind, you're trying to help people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm in a way also doing this for my family, for my children who are like-minded, but they also, as we need to understand as to why the hell that we do this madness. So, so as Matt, we have agency. As, okay. Well, as the madnesses uh, wind up, as they pass slowly, what happens to the uh, perpetrators uh, before we go to the general population, the, the people, the, the Daniel Andrews, the um, Scott Morrison's, the Boris Johnson's, those are, are Justin Trudeau and Jacinta Ardern, can't forget them. What happens to them post a madness? Do they usually get uh, crucified, metaphorically speaking? Usually they get away with it, Matt. It's bad news. I know it's a horrible thing to have to say. But usually speaking, politicians get away with grievous crimes against humanity. Uh, And the only real exceptions are when some other country invades them and sort of puts out the leaders and hangs them to dry, or there is a, a, a real revolution, like in the French or the Russian Revolution. But those are the exceptions. In the vast majority of cases whereby a crowd meant mad and did huge damage either to others or to self, mm-hmm. it fades and the leaders get away with it. Often they remain the leaders. Mm-hmm. And uh, just ask yourself, you know, did, did the instigators of the prohibition, were they ever, as it were, taken to account? No. Yeah. Uh, what about what about the elites who got us into the First World War? Were they ever sort of hung out to dry? No, no. they were still the kings and queens and prime ministers afterwards, and and they were sort of often rewarded for the stupidity that they let us all into, uh, and ditto really for lots of wars and and lots of disasters. Right, by and large, the perpetrators at the top get away with this sort of. Okay. All right. The biggest perpetrators of all, of all I'd argue, was, was us, the normal people. Can you explain to us this idea that you've, you've talked about in this article of everyone having the potential to become a Nazi? Because I feel like when people screamed at me for pushing my children in a swing in a suburban street in an empty playground, they screamed at me, you're spreading the virus. I feel mm-hmm. like I was witnessing exactly what you're describing, a very ugly It's just a swing. I get it. But that's the same kind of seed that can say, get on the train. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, totally right. Uh, and I, I, I have own stories of, of that as well. And uh, yeah, indeed, it's, it's horrifying if you see people react that way. But the, the, the horrible truth about that kind of behavior is, is that it's in a way is really normal behavior. Because people in that state of mind are truly thinking that they are looking out for public health. Uh, and so the tunnel vision in which they are that, you know, everything is just about Corona and it being spread and people having it uh, and without any sense of proportion, without any sense of, well, but we have thousands of diseases and there are thousands of other problems and they're mostly speaking much bigger than this Corona problem. Uh, and hence, by focusing on this, put all of society's resources and intelligence towards uh, a futile attempt to sort of control this unseen virus that you are doing huge damage. They don't see that. They don't see that they're doing huge damage. They think they're doing the right thing because they, in their own minds, mistake that very, very tiny thing, the two plus two is four, for something huge, you know, the 356. Mm. Uh, And so they're, in their own mind, being good people. And that's the clue clue about Nazism. They, too, thought they were being good people. And they genuinely thought it. It's not just, as it were... No, you know, they were, they, they were sort of stupid people. They didn't know. No, it's just their, their view had become single-minded. So the German Nazis also thought that they were doing things for public health. They were excising the unhealthy elements, which in their case was, you know, the Jews, the wrong intellectuals, the gypsies, uh, the socialists, and various other groups. Right? Uh, they were getting rid of them to sort of improve the health of the remainder. And it's a very similar mindset with this indeed, you know, being totally mad uh, about uh, what is really one of the, the, the less dangerous viruses in this world. Um, 
And that's why I say that everybody is able, capable of doing that, because that, that sort of focus, that comes from being a group member. So if you're unlucky enough to be in a group and you're a solid part of that group and that group goes mad in that way, really the, the chances are close to 100% that you'll go mad too, you know, because that, that is the truth as you know it. Uh, and the fact that, that there are all kinds of commercial interests pushing that truth further after a while, uh, and that it's totally disproportionate from an historical perspective, it will just be lost on us because that is how we are as, as humans. You know, we, we have this, this group aspect to our truth, to our notion as to what is important. And if everybody around us shouts that something is important, we believe it because we're set up to believe it. That's how we survive as a species. We, we, we're not set up to, you know, say farewell to our groups because alone we die, uh, evolutionary speaking. So we're, we're set up in that sense to be gullible towards our group. Um, and, and so it's, it's understandable that we have this crowd mode. But unfortunately, if the crowd puts it in his head that some group is a real problem, uh, then yeah, it will use whatever tools it has, whether that's gas chambers or sticks, to get rid of the opposition. So what is the, uh, what, what is the controlling factor of, um, of degree to which people will go? So if we were to make a comparison now where we're being told in Australia, pandemic of the unvaccinated and demonizing them. Yes, we're mm -hmm. not sending them to gas chambers. Okay, everyone, that's the accusation everyone makes against this argument. But we are doing what the Nazis did in early in 30s in Germany, saying mm -hmm. the Jews have typhus and they are diseased and you need to not mm -hmm. serve them in your shops. So what stops us? Because clearly we're not putting unvaccinated people in gas chambers here. What mm -hmm. makes a society go into further steps like in Nazi Germany, if it's the same groupish crowd dogma that you've mentioned? Yeah, yeah, it, it is the same groupish crowd dogma. And I think it's also important to say that, you know, the, 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 the apartheid system that is there with the vaccinated is sort of very nasty. But the far greater damage is what we've done to our own kids. A whole generation of kids has been denied schooling, but also denied uh, social time with other kids, uh, emotional learning. That'll scar them for life. That'll mean that their IQs are lower than of the previous generation and significantly lower. We're seeing that in lots of data. Uh, lots of people have the wrong habits on learning. Uh, and so that's been a, a horrible, a horrible outcome. And also that, don't underestimate, as it were, the tremendous health costs of shutting down the health system supposedly to protect it. That is going to cost Australia at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and then we're not even talking about the vaccine side effects. We're, with every study, we're now learning that that's worse and worse than we initially feared. Um, and if you tally that up for the world as a whole, we are now already looking at sort of a, a total damage count that is similar to that of the Second World War. So as it were, in terms of the total damage that humanity has done to itself, we are once again in that ballpark figure, but wow. it's less concentrated than at the time of the Nazis. But the total damage is now looking to be very similar. Now, you ask, as it were, how great does this fanaticism get? Well, that, that indeed depends on, on sort of partially whether or not the group is aware of other groups that are like them that are choosing a different path. And so Australians are aware of the fact that the American Republicans have sort of, you know, taken a different position. They are aware of the fact that in Britain there are, there are increasingly strong voices saying, no, these lockdowns are a mistake. And that helps. That helps, as it were, preventing Australia from sort of flight... Uh, really sliding towards greater authoritarianism. But what aggravates it is if there is more sense of crisis, there's more pain. And so via a recession, one can get more and more and more fanatical. Um, and then one can get more fanatical towards the unvaccinated. But, but really, it's, it's almost like a fashion cycle. You know, that, uh, that focus of what the group's anger can, can turn towards and shift very quickly to something else. So in Australia, one of the dangers is that they'll pick on the Chinese minorities right? mm. or they'll, they'll pick on some other group that they then suddenly see as the enemy and they become really draconian towards them. Now, I don't see that happen so much in a hurry because Australia is still lucky enough that it's very rich and you know the iron ore price has helped soften the blow of the tremendous own goal recession that, that has already happened, as it, as it were. Um, but it's possible. Right. It's, I mean, this year in that sense is a nasty year because of these, these enormous problems that have suddenly become visible via inflation, the oil price shock, the food shock, which was already there, but Ukraine didn't help. Right. Um, the impoverishment is becoming clearer and clearer. So as it were, more and more energy is put into the system 
And that can lead to, as it were, a, a greater fanaticism, which is pretty much what happened, of course, in, in Germany, right? That sort of super fanatics came into power and they, they then just, as it were, set a course towards new wars uh, and that created its own crises so that you become ever, ever more fanatical. So by the end of the war, the Germans were sort of completely out of their minds, you know, sending their own sons on suicide missions. Uh, and committing suicide when it was clear to them that they were not going to win. But they, they were sort of, you know, totally gone on this fanaticism. Um, but, yeah, we all have this capacity in it. So it's a, it's a question of, you know, enough pressures on the group as a whole and we'll get more and more mad. Let's hope that's, not. That's uh, some more bad news. Thank, thank you, for Paul. But uh, so as, Sorry, a re- <laughs> as reality checks um, strike on people with cost of living pressures, some of the conservative popular conservative thinkers are saying that will help people awake from some of the madness, but you're saying, no, it'll actually can re-inspire fanaticism, maybe on a different cause. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, in the first one month of the lockdown in, in March, April, I also had that idea, which is, ah, you know, that the pain will become visible to people. They will have lost their jobs. They will see their kids not being happy and becoming depressed. I mean, the data was all there. People only had to look within their own family to see what a stupidity lockdowns were. But no, not only did they double down, they did something very, very other things that were very odd, which made no sense. So one of the things they did, which sort of woke me up to the fact that it was a group madness rather than just as it were uh, misguided health, is that they had no interest in countries that did something else. They had no interest in hearing that Sweden had done something else, a whole of Scandinavia was doing something else. Japan and South Korea were doing something else. They didn't want to know. And they also didn't want to know the outcome of that. Now, that makes no sense if you think it's just about public health, because then you're curious. You want to know, oh, somebody else has done a different experiment. I, I want to know what that is. And you're also curious about the evidence for, well, why did we do lockdowns? Well, where was the randomized control experiment, which told us that that made sense? Show me the data. There was no interest in the general population for seeing that other data, for sort of really engaging with all the information that was coming out across the world as to what kind of preventative medicines were helping uh, and uh, what other public policies were going. And that is the big clue. And that is still the case now. Still now, Australians don't want to hear. They don't want to hear about the negative effects. They don't want to see it in their own children. They're still looking away. And that tells you they're still mad. Right? It's still in this crowd madness that just doesn't want to see the obvious, right? Wants to keep believing two plus two is 356. I was going to ask what happens to those uh, people, for example, the Nazi sympathizers, when they ref- after the event in the 50s and whatever, when they reflect on what they've done, it's very difficult to admit to what you've done, right? Do, do humans generally just go into an ignorant um, denialism? Yes, or- yes okay. they pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. And, and they, they just don't want to talk about it. Right? So I, I read up on this because I was interested in exactly the same question. I sort of asked myself, well, what, what happened to those communities? I mean, what, what happened to the non-Nazis you know, and, and, and the Nazis? Were they sort of reintegrated? How did that go within families? But there, there are several nasty things to say about that. One is that very few of uh, the anti-Nazis survived the Second World War oh, right? wow. because they, they were sort of really hounded down. And so if you like, if you're a rational person in the mid-30s and you had to make the choice, you're either going to be mad with the Nazis or you're going to be committed against them. Well, if you want to survive, you're better off joining the group. That's a really nasty thing to realize, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's where your personal incentive is. So very few made it to the end of the war. So there's very little to be reconciled with. They've sort of gotten rid of all the anti-Nazis. Uh, and the other thing is, is my understanding is that that partly uh, with the help of the Americans who also thought they needed to get on with life and fight the Soviets in various ways. They just basically pretended it hadn't happened or that it wasn't them. Um, and they basically didn't talk about it as much as possible. Now, later on in the 60s and 70s, you know, the, the, the younger generation pushed it a lot and uh, there started to be a whole industry of sort of, you know, uh, sorry, and uh, we should never let this happen again. Uh, but of course, the last two years have shown that the Germans have learned absolutely nothing from that period, totally nothing. Right? They've also gone along with the madness again. They have not learned the central lesson. Uh, the central lesson that this is not about individual bad people. And that was the mistake that the Germans made thinking about it afterwards. That, oh, this is just because, you know, we're not moral enough. We don't teach them enough about what's right and wrong. That is exactly the wrong approach. That will get you nowhere. Right? 
because that, that just instigates that you should be a good person. The Nazis thought they were good people. That's right. the point. So you, you're going to get nowhere. We're just moralizing about this. And that was the mistake in the commemorations of lots of these things. That's not how you should think about it if you want to prevent this in the future. You've got so to how, think how, about this is, this, this is human. We can all do this. And so we must think of institutions that, that make it harder for us to get like this or that snap us out of this quicker. So is that the uh, way to prevent this from happening again? Another madness is a well. Uh, I mean, we, we humans can get crowd mad, uh, and there are uh, the, the, there are there is, were levels of, of arousal that you know no institutions will be able to prevent. And so, in that sense, it's inevitable that we will go through these sort of cycles of crowd madness in the in the centuries to come. But we do know how you can set up institutions so that you're more likely to snap out of it quicker. Uh, and, and we've learned almost by accident some things that were important. So think of the U.S., right? The U.S., they're all with the madness, both the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, it, it's Trump who signed up for all these uh, um, measures, you know, who handed huge authority over to the CDC. Uh, but also all, all these conservative newspapers are all egging this on. They all wanted this to happen. They all thought this was the right thing. So they're all with the madness, both Republicans and Democrats. But America is a big place and the states have a huge amount of own power. Yes. And so with these, you know, 51, 53 states, um, you have some who just almost by accident do less of this or who for some reason uh, try something else for a while. And then if they discover, oh, this works well for us, they hang on to it. And so that happened in the United States with this small state of South Dakota, which is yes. almost a population of zero. Uh, and then other Republican states, because that happened to be a Republican state, sort of, oh, that's not so bad. And then DeSantis uh, decided to do some investigating of, of his own, actually really look at the science and talk to some scientists that he uh, identified rather than them were foisted on him by his bureaucracy. And it's sort of he switched, and Texas switched. And so really what protected the Americans in this way is their diversity, is the fact that baked into their political system is the almost impossibility of organizing a whole country towards something. Um, and that's an institutional thing. So the Americans were as mad as anybody, but their institutions in that sense worked to save them because the huge diversity across the country meant that there was just a lot of experimentation. Uh, and by experimentation, you experiment your way out of this. You, you know, some of your group will discover the truth uh, and then that will become a magnet for everybody else. So you know, Florida uh, is now a magnet for lots of party goers from all over the country. And of course, it attracts companies uh, and people who are ambitious, uh, who want a bit of life. They sort of flee the mad north and, and come to the relatively sensible south. Who would have thought, eh? Five years ago, who would have thought the opposite? But that's how it went. And so that was not by, you know, nobody thought that beforehand, that that would have been a benefit. But, but you know, it's as it were, the wisdom of our institutions comes shining out. And that has nothing to do with morality or thinking that people in South Dakota are more moral or smarter. You know, by most previous tests, they were the opposite. It doesn't matter, right? There was just experimentation and we got out of that. And Australia's had a bit of that. Australia's had a bit of experimenting at the state level. And of course, yes. New South Wales yes. seems to have been the most reasonable one. Mm. So you, you have that a bit as well. Federation has helped a little bit uh, compared to, for instance, China, which, you know, looks like being mad for years still. So do we have any institutions, you just mentioned federalism generally, but across the Commonwealth, are there other institutions that can protect us like the states and the US have done? Um, I think that one of the things I've always liked about Australia is that they have compulsory voting and that the whole population votes. I think that in principle allows a very quick snapping out uh, as soon as it becomes clear to the population what's going on. So uh, it, that is a very strong mechanism or uh, allowing a quick change of politics if the time is right, uh, and, and a quick change of course. So, um, and also this, the fact that you get preferential voting means that as soon as there is some sizable group which is more reasonable, that will be in parliament. Um, and it, as you said, it hasn't happened in the previous election because Australians are still, as it were, sleepish, sleepishly sheepish. <laughs> Um, well, Canada and the UK. It does have that potential in it. So that's a very strong thing. There's, there's also other institutions that I would advocate doing. Right? And, and one of the things that I would advocate doing for Australia is that it, it should choose its top public servants, but including the, the head of the, the national media, including hospitals, including the universities, in a different way. At, at the moment, it's done in a completely corrupt way. Right? Yes. It's all special interest groups that drive these appointments. And, and I think they should be directly appointed by populations 
via juries. So mm -hmm. one jury, one top position, like the head of the ABC, that jury can then in a matter of weeks decide what do they want, how they're going to search for someone, and how they appoint someone. And that'll break the, the stranglehold of special interests over politics in Australia. It will break it over the public service, uh, and then the public service as a whole becomes more in favor of its actual role, which is helping the population. Now, that won't prevent the madness, but it will make it much easier to snap out of it because it means all these independently appointed leaders, there'll be some reasonable among them, and they will have their own mandate to keep shouting that. So you, you prevent, as it were, the, the total lock-in of the group thing. And, and in Canada and UK, do, are they any better or worse set up with these institutions to protect themselves? Uh, Canadian institutions are very similar to the Australian ones. Although yeah. I understand they don't have compulsory voting, but of course it's also you know, uh, an offshoot of the Westminster system. So the, the civil service is set up in a very similar way. There is federalism in a very similar way, which has also helped it uh, compared to places like China and France, which are more unitary. Um, but no, not much, I would say. There's, 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 there's A, not much difference, and there's not much that I think you can learn from those particular places. Uh, New Zealand, in that sense, is especially interesting because yeah. New Zealand wasn't nearly as corrupt as Australia, in my view, beforehand, uh, and sort of also only loses from its lockdowns. I mean, it, it has no large pharmaceutical industry that I'm aware of, so it's not making money out of this. Uh, uh, and it's more dependent on the flow of uh, sort of people around the world via its, uh, its tourism. And so it's sort of spectacularly shot itself in the own foot. And still they love this. Still they want to keep going with this. So it, it really tells you that, no, there's no sort of, you know, dark corporate force within New Zealand guiding this. There, there is just also this group madness that, that they've locked into. And there was, I recall at the end of 2020, there was a political party which, uh, which sort of had as its sole platform, we want to stop the lockdowns. I think they got less than 1%. Yeah. Yeah. As a no, half Kiwi, I'm half Kiwi. I'm very sad about it. But what about the UK? Why is the UK? Uh, uh, what's the the word? The orneriness that you see in the, in the in the USA. The UK seems to have arced up. The general population population has arced up a little bit more than Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. What's what's giving you you guys your Red Bull to drive you? Um, I think in in the UK, the their there has been something which I have hardly seen in Australia, which is that part of the elites were against lockdowns and they were against lockdowns from the very start. Mm -hmm. So you had this high, uh, high court judge, Jonathan Sumption. There was yeah. also effectively the top medical academics in Oxford. So uh, mm -hmm. Carl Hennigan, uh, Sunetra Gupta, uh, these were really powerhouses in their fields, but also the well-being economists, uh, I was amongst that, Lord Layard, Lord Gus O'Donnell, uh, the What Works Wellbeing Centre, John Deneva, they also, in their own ways, uh, spoke out against this, you know. Um, and you had, within the Conservative Party, a clear group against this, you know, um, the, the 1922 committee chairman, I think Brady, but also other high-profile people. So it was clear that there was a split within the elite, uh, and that there was a sizable minority, it wasn't the majority, but a sizable minority which said, this is a bad way to go. This will just cost us. Right? Uh, and I think that helped right? because that, that is, as it were, a, a high status group of people that others can then flock around and hide behind and makes it easier to organize a resistance and to make that resistance grow. Uh, and it also makes it easier for political parties to switch because now the conservatives, if they do put in Sunak, to a certain extent, they, they can own the anti-lockdown thing a lot more because it, it was already within their party that there was a lot of visible dissension. Now, Australia hasn't had that. You know, there's, there's been no sizable minority that I know of that openly within the Liberal or Labour parties really went against lockdowns. Um, now, I do suspect and strongly suspect that uh, Morrison and his cabinet were against lockdowns but just felt themselves sucked into the madness. Just they couldn't, they couldn't escape it because of electoral reasons. Um, but they didn't speak out against it. They didn't, as it were, really put down a huge PR campaign that says, wake up people, you know, to really go against the man. So they, they felt they just couldn't do that. Um, and so that also, I think, has, has sort of, you know, justified for a lot of people their own madness uh, and makes it harder to snap out. There's just been less vocal, high-level opposition. I, I know, Gigi, yourself, 
Amran, myself, Small never have tried, but, but you know, uh, your, your viewership, it's not in the millions yet, is it? So. No, it's t- yeah, 200,000 is tiny in Australia. Uh, the, the, the project, which you've seen from living here, I'm sorry that you had to watch that, gets millions of views. Uh, all right, can we, now we're talking about the elites, Professor. Uh, we've just spent, you know, just in the last 45 minutes talking about more of an emergent phenomena that's inherent in, in, in humans everywhere. So these people who are kind of looking to the elites and the elitist organizations, the who and so on saying it's, and big pharma who clearly have a profit incentive, uh, they're lobbying and they're moving pieces on the chessboard. What do you make of these elitists and elitist institutions and their kind of, uh, their control over what's been happening, whether it's there or not? Yeah. Um, my take on that has been that I don't believe they planned this beforehand. I've looked at the evidence that people have sort of said were there, like, you know, a, a pandemic trial of the World Economic Forum in, in October 2019. Um, and if you really look at that, you know, it's clear that it wasn't a trial run at all. Because if you look at those supposed trial simulations, they, they have trial simulations on something different every month. You know, it was asteroids, killer bees, God knows what. Um, but also, they then come out with statements as to what one should do, which were entirely in accordance with what was then known to be best practice, what was official policy by the WHO and were on the blueprints, which is don't stop people from moving around, don't stop trade, don't do lockdowns. In a sense, uh, it was sort of totally sensible and thrown away with, with all the other plans. So I, I have not found any reasonable evidence, really, uh, of sort of a conspiracy beforehand to push this. But I think there is a lot of evidence that very quickly, very quickly, already in January and February, lots of special interest groups smelt money. and They smelt power out of this. And they rode it. And they rode it for you know, a, a million and one reasons. But basically, selfishness, power lust. Uh, and they grab the opportunity to grab more resources, more authority towards themselves, push out other groups, belittle other groups. And of course, look, power and money feel wonderful to people. There's, there's all kinds of advantages that come with both. And they would like to keep it going. And Big Pharma is one of them, particularly Pfizer, who's won the battle with the other big pharma companies as to who supplies the loyalty card to people. Uh, and sort of, you know, rakes in the billions. So Pfizer's share price is now still very close to its top. I think Moderna is more than half because it lost. Right? So there's also argy-bargy within these uh, elites, groups, if you like. Uh, they make a lot of money out of it. The big internet companies, big tech has made a lot of money out of it as people sit at home and use more of their electronics and also buy more stuff via their platforms. And so they've been very happy to go along with the censorship. They formed an alliance with governments. And you could think of that as a fascist alliance because that's, that's the heart of fascism. You know, it's, it's sort of this sort of total control uh, of company and state as, as one entity. And it almost doesn't matter who influences who then. It is one entity. Now. Right. Um, they are definitely in favor of this. Um, the health establishment has really sort of, you know, come out as a force of its own, uh, being against health, I would say. You know, they've, they've really violated the Nuremberg Codes. Uh, they've committed themselves now. Of course, I'm thinking of the Fauci's of this world, but also Chris Whitty, Valance in the UK, and there are the equivalent ones in Australia. You know, they're supposed top health advisors and departments. I think they've really overshot their mandate, uh, and they have. They've committed horrible crimes, as far as I'm able uh, to see as a non-lawyer. Right? Um, and I would like to see them in court over that. You know, if you just think of, of the damage they've done without any actual experimental evidence, which they're supposed to have and which they ask of everybody who disagrees with them, um, they are now fully committed. So it's a rather powerful group, you know, add to that that the population doesn't want to know, the politicians who've gotten more authority out of this. This is not, this is not a small group, right? At the media, it's a powerful coalition. But of course, reality will intervene. And just the horrendous cost. You can pretend they're not there, but you know, you you just have less means, less people. You know, the, the birth rate has now gone down. And, and think of all the premature deaths. So reality will, as it were, at least have its effect, if you like, uh, even if you pretend it's not there. Uh, and then, of course, you, you can you cannot notice, not fail to notice that the country is weakening uh, and that institutions are falling apart. So sooner or later, you're you're going to have to 
at least implicitly uh, admit that it was a mistake and reverse course on a lot of stuff. And we're in that process now. We're, you know, politicians, particularly in Australia, don't yet want to admit they've made a mistake. They've, they've given honours to the people who've sort of got us into these trouble. Uh, and so, you know, doubling down on the madness. Uh, and that just means it takes longer. Okay, so if we're seeing an opportunistic uh, concentration of power in things like um, the World Economic Forum and the, and the WHO, uh, what did you mean when you wrote that one of the antidotes or one of the things to put a spanner in the works of that concentration of power would be nationalism? Why? Mm-hmm. Um, these groups are very globalist. Right? So Pfizer makes money everywhere. WHO is a globalist organization. Uh, big tech makes its money everywhere. The media is extremely international. So if you just look at the nature of those groups who formed an alliance over the lockdowns, they are globalists in nature, right? There are companies who make their money globally, uh, whose leadership uh, comes from many different countries and who have a, a globalist philosophy. Um, and so and they try to have power over lots of countries. Uh, but if you ask yourself, well, where is in principle the power to move against this? Who in principle has, as it were, a huge incentive to look up and see the damage that's going on? It's nationalists. It's patriots because it's their country that's being weakened. It's their children that are uh, being marginalized. It's their health system that is suffering. So as it were, the, the natural counter movement is nationalistic uh, and And part of the reason to say that is that in the long run, and I now mean the last 500 years, nationalism has won against all comers. It won against the huge power of the Catholic Church, which is also an internationalist ideological center. Uh, It won out against uh, landed elites, gentry. Uh, it, It did so in the First World War. It won out against international socialism and communism. Uh, it, you know, it, it basically has won against all comers, and it must be favoured to win again. So I'm afraid that the, 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 the most likely way in, in which the fanaticism might go is towards greater and greater nationalism and patriotism, which has this element of caring more and more about the actual outcomes, the actual weakening of the country, and that that uh, has enough power to, as it were, overcome these huge vested interests still pushing. So this is a Trump phenomenon type candidates popping up around in our political systems in the West. And you think that's, that's a, a favorite? Bit. Yeah. Okay. A little bit. Pauline Hansen, who's also oh, against the lockdowns, as I understand, right? Definitely. Yeah. Le Pen, who is sort of in France against this. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. Uh, and indeed, nationalistic, patriotic figures. Um, and it is strange to say, but I sort of put my hope a little bit on that and, and hope they don't, we, we don't get people who are too fanatical. Right? Yes. In that sense, uh, Trump is, as it were, nicely narcissistic. He's sort of nicely selfish, so he won't, he won't be too nasty. It's bad for business. But all kinds of characters can come to the fore. So the, the, there is a danger in that nationalism. You know, it's, it's a very powerful force, and it, it is sort of the obvious way out, but it, it has a fanaticism of its own, which can also be very dangerous. So on balance, are you saying, because I'm a millennial, I'm 36. All I've been told my whole life is that nationalists are horrible. They're racist. Pauline Hanson's a racist. Trump's an idiot. But are you saying, no, it could be a good thing, provided we keep a check and balance on the Well, uh, uh, yes. And, and, and we'll also say something else, which is that nationalism is baked into our countries. Right? I mean, if you think of just who is allowed to vote for the Australian parliament, it's only Australians. You've got to be an Australian citizen to vote uh, in Australian elections. That is inherently and explicitly nationalistic. There is just the demos of the democracy is a national group. Uh, think of, of you know, people who come to Australia. They have to learn its history. They have to do a test on it. That's a nationalistic text, test. You know, how much do you know about our history, our people, our customs? Um, the health system is a national health system. A lot of the names are national, you know, national ballet, national orchestra, uh, national this, that, and the other. So the reality of our countries is that these are nationalistic undertakings. And, and I know that it's, it's been very weird that for a generation we pretend that nationalism was something bad, whereas nationalism has been the, the sort of underlying force of our countries for centuries and, and has baked into our, our, our institutions and every fiber of it. So it's sort of like saying you hate yourself. Um, and I know that we've done that to you uh, and we've done that for all kinds of stupid reasons. But it's not true. 
Uh, I mean, you know, nationalism is, is sort of the, the core motivating force of our societies and it's been suppressed a lot. And now, you know, forms of internationalism are, are, are trying to overpower the nationalism. Uh, but I think they'll fail. I think nationalism is still the stronger force in human society and it'll, it'll reassert itself. Uh, and that reassertion can be a nasty process. Well, it may be messy, but I'm encouraged by that ending, Professor. Thank you. Uh, last, last question. Do you have any advice for those who are remaking their lives sort of my age and, and younger, especially youngins who are entering into the workforce, so that, you know, 18 to 20, early 20s, coming out of university, 25? I, f- I get the sense that I'm living through a very big change in our world. I know you've talked about cycles and things repeating, and, and we've seen this before, but I do feel like this is very different. And I've got two little kids, and I feel like I'm raising them for a different world to what I was raised into, and my parents who lived in a Goldilocks zone. For from 55 to 2013, my mother died and she just lived in this Goldilocks zone in Australia. So do you have any advice on these people who I think might be entering into a new world over the next 50 years? Yeah, I do. Um, and I take a different perspective as to where do I take the perspective of what is best for them as individuals versus what would be good for their countries for them to do. Right? Hmm. Uh, I think... And it's a horrible thing perhaps to say, but I think the best advice I can give to individuals is to escape, move out, take your family to a more reasonable place in the world. Um, Because then there will also be amongst like-minded people. Mm. And you will be building better societies where they are already functioning better. So, you know, take them to Switzerland, Scandinavia, Florida, whatever. You know, there are, as it were, places of sanity in this world and helping those societies prosper, set up better institutions, has this magnet aspect, even to Australia, because it's an example of how Australia can be. And so it's part of that ledger of reforms once the time is ripe. And so if I give advice to people individually, and I have three children who are uh, you know, all in their 20s now, and so thinking of kids, I say the same to them, you know, go away from a mad society, go and live somewhere reasonable, because that's at, at an individual level, uh, is a much better choice. You're, you're much less risk of losing your kids to, to this as well. And, and, you know, you're sort of walking away from the potential violence that's coming. Um, but as, a, as members of society, as people who'd be committed to, as we're fighting their corner, uh, my advice is, A, organize with others around you, uh, and particularly when it comes to education, because if your kids go to a mainstream school, they will become part of the madness. You cannot go up against peer pressure, you know, so you must surround them with peers who are like mine. And if you don't, you'll lose them. So organize education, organize some minimal health uh, systems, but basically organize as a community to protect the kids, I would say, uh, and, and let them grow up reasonably, because otherwise they will get sucked into this. The, the peers will just be more important than the, than the parents. Um, and the other thing is that I'd like to see a kind of a, a reawakening of people so that they... They start to learn more about the nature of politics. They, they learn more about the enlightenment, about how people can really be, and hence also become active thinkers in terms of reform, take ownership of their communities, start local parties, uh, become part of school boards, you know, really have an influence locally. And you see that happening a lot in America, by the way. A lot of the anti-lockdowners have started to become politically active in their local communities, organizing their own little schools, their own little health cares, uh, really, as we were trying to take over uh, their schools, so that yeah, more reasonable things come out. And so that that'd be my advice. Uh, if you don't want to run away uh, for whatever reason, uh, either noble or otherwise, um, cooperate with those close by and and start to become an intellectual uh, and, and you know start to be a group of intellectuals. Uh, and that yeah, that, that'll have all kinds of benefits. Paul Freitas, thank you very much for uh, spending the last hour with us. I think a lot of us are just trying to make sense of what's going on. So even though we're still in the same situation as, as beforehand, uh, you know, it's it's helpful to talk it through. And so thank you for your more broadly your writings. That's been very helpful to me. If people want to check those out, I'll put links in the description below. Where can people follow you? Where are you most active? Uh, I now write most on Brownstone. And whenever there's a book about this sort of stuff, it's either with Cameron or Gigi. So if you follow them, then, you know, you'll, you'll encounter me somewhere there as well. The book is very good. Uh, I would usually hold it up, but it's in one of our other studios, everyone. A very good book. Description link below. Thank you for joining us. Good luck in your next prime ministerial election. 
my friends in the UK. <laughs> yes, you too, Matt. And and well done on, on these series and, and sticking it through, basically, right? Um, the very best of luck. I would like to say the very best of British luck, but I'm, I think you want better than that this time. <laughs>